Hello again, you're very welcome back to the iTag podcast, technology and innovation from the west of Ireland. This is Philip Smith and delighted to be joined this week by co-founder of AltaCloud and SVP of R&D and AI group lead at Genesis, Joe Smith. You're very welcome to the iTag podcast. Thanks, Phil. Good morning. Great to have you, Joe. We're also joined, as usual, by William Johnstone of Trudeau. Will, you're welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back, Philip. Still doing it on the Zoom. That's it, yeah. We get physical at some stage. Yeah. Once the vaccines roll out. Joe, delighted you could could join us. You've had a, a very interesting career journey. Could you start and tell us a little bit about how you got started in tech? Yeah, absolutely. Like so originally I'm from Clare Morrison, County Mayo, and uh when I was about fifteen I got an Atari twenty six hundred for Christmas and uh in January I took it apart to see what how it worked. I could never get it back together. So that kind of spurred me to go and do electronic engineering in uh in UL, um, and that was back in the 80s, a long time ago. Um, when I graduated, I ended up in Apple in Cork, um, and I was working at the time, well, that was a manufacturing facility, and we were doing test automation, but I, I got a rotation into Cupertino in California, where I worked on um, Apple's first Ethernet controllers and the software drivers for that. So that was really a great experience. Um, and it made me realize that, uh, you know, software engineering isn't some esoteric thing that you have to be specially born to, but that I, you know, back then software was very much a niche in, in the Irish economy. Um, and that opportunity showed me that we could be just as good software engineers as the Silicon Valley, uh, wonder kids. So I ended up back in, in Galway or back in the West in, by joining DEC in Galway in 1992. And it was just at the end of the DEC era. Um, and when, when the manufacturing was been shut down there, now DEC hasn't gone away. It has morphed into First Compact and now Hewlett Packard. So that lineage within Galway continues. Um, I, I ended up going back to the States in 1993, first with, with DEC. Um, with a project that they wanted to continue that had was been wrapped up in Galway. Um, they took four of us to New Hampshire to, to, to seed the team in the States to complete that project. Um, America at the time just wasn't for me. So I ended up back in, in Galway in 1995 with Nortel when uh, Barry O'Sullivan was just setting up his software design center. Um, and, you know, Nortel had been in Galway since the early 70s as a manufacturing facility, and this was the first foray into software. Uh, we did some really great work there around voice over IP, and that was the first big tech transition that I was really involved in, the move from time domain multiplexing uh, telephony, the old style of telephony, into voice over IP, which is now how pretty much all telephony systems in the world work. Um, we 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 uh, worked on a number of patents there, and a lot of the you know, we were doing voice over IP before Skype was even even a thing, and that was happening here in Galway, and that was with great guys like Pat Eshin and Keith Griffin, um, who we who will talk about a, a, a bit further down the line. Um, so. You know, from there, I moved, there was a reorg in Nortel around 2000, and I ended up being the, the software engineering manager 
for all the channels uh, in customer care for Nortel that weren't voice. So back then, that was primarily email with a very little bit of um, web chat. All of that software was on-premise software, so that's the way we developed software. It was waterfall methodology, and uh, things moved uh, at a different pace to what they do today. Um, in 2007, Cisco came to Galway, and I jumped ship. I became employee number two in Cisco out in Northern Moor, and uh, along with Mike Conroy and later Pat Hessian and Tom Lambert and others, we built that out to uh, about the, the 200 software engineers who are out there now. Um, so there we were doing unified communications, so basically soft phones. And it was that was part of the transition from desk phones to software-driven telephony. Again, on the back of voice over IP, but taking it to the next generation via software. Um, by 2013, I was kind of, you know, I'd been in unified communications and customer care for, for um, about almost 15, 20 years at that stage. Um, so I was looking for a change. And uh, myself and Barry O'Sullivan started having a discussion around uh, WebRTC. So WebRTC is a technology that builds telephony into, directly into the browser. And it was just becoming a thing in around 2012, 2013. And we started to discuss how that might disrupt customer care. Um, because you could, instead of having, you could connect the web experience directly to telephony. And we thought that was interesting. And the more we looked at that, we realized that if you applied machine learning to that, you could look at the way uh, people interact with the digital assets of the business, whether it's web or mobile, and use that to determine when to engage um, a person. And that would be because they're doing activities that makes it look like they're going to call in to the customer care center for support, or they may be looking like they need, uh, there may be a sales opportunity. And we could do that through machine learning and AI. The other thing we wanted to do was to make sure we built a cloud computing uh, SaaS product, and move away from, you know, the world was still primarily on-premise back then. Uh, AWS was a tiny business of, of maybe $100 million, not the multi-billion dollar behemoth that is today. Um, so we, we decided to, to go that route and uh, I like the cloud that was to yeah so exa exactly so yes yeah, so that was the 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 foundation of alt cloud um, now you know I, I'm an engineer Barry's strategy and 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 you know he, at the time he was a uh, well before that he was EVP and general manager of a business unit within Cisco. Uh, so we needed a, a sales guy. So we we had Barry had a friend uh, Dan Ara uh, based in the states, which we thought was important. Um, who who came in? Who joined us as a co-founder? <clears throat> excuse me, as uh, on the sales side. So that gave us a very kind of sales, business, and engineering uh, uh, founding team, which proved to be very effective. Um, so from there, we built out the product. Uh, we've 
discovered it's very hard to get into break into traditional customer care. Um, so we ended up going down more of the route of uh, digital uh, digital sales, and that, you know we were making quite good inroads with that. When Genesis came and uh, took a great interest in us, and decided we were worth acquiring, and that was in um, no, um, February twenty eighteen. We were acquired. Sorry, twenty yeah twenty eighteen. We were acquired by Genesis. At the time, we were up, up to about 22 staff, mostly engineering, around 19 engineers. Um, and the others were, the other three were sales and, and um, go to market. Um, Genesis really gave us the ability to scale up. Um, and we, we saw what was Alta Cloud become the product that is now predictive engagement within Genesis, but also we've added predictive routing, brought in bots, and we're building out a full customer experience data platform where you bring data together from disparate uh, sources, whether they're internal business processes or um, systems like marketing automation or CRM, and bring all that together to drive engagement in real time with the customer that's appropriate for that specific customer. So whether they want a digital engagement via chat, whether they want a call back, or whether they just it's appropriate for them to get a content offer on the web that drives them, that uh, helps them with frequently asked questions or knowledge, or we connect them to an agent specifically lined up to answer their questions, and all of that has been you know through the journey we had with Alta Cloud. And it, it, like obviously, that's all the, the AI coming together there, and the um, the the timing of the intervention and the nature of the intervention is interesting there as well, right? Because you you know, we've all been to websites where no matter what you're doing, you're getting pinged. Yeah, exactly, and that's smarter. That's the critical thing: is you you observe how how this individual customer is is interacting with the with the digital assets. And you compare it to all the other previous journeys um, using machine learning, and therefore you can determine the correct action for this individual. And it'll take into account their, their, you know, their preferred means of communication. It'll take into account business attributes. Um, you know, uh, do we have an available agent that's ready to talk to this person on this particular topic, or should we drop them into a bot because? It would be it would be just as quick to handle their their query via a bot, whether that's not a, a you know what what are store opening hours or I, I want to move money in my account and all those types of things can be handled via via bot transactions these days. Um. So so yeah, bringing machine learning AI together with customer experience is exactly what we're doing in Genesis. It's- it's a it's a fascinating story. The I, obviously, I think a lot of our listeners will be very interested in the acquisition and so on. The the, the cycle time for an acquisition, Joe, completed in twenty eighteen. Would that have been going on for a period of time? Or yeah. So, so you know, we, we, we you know acquisitions are always a, a tricky thing because you know we had to decide was it the right thing for our business. Um, you know, our next step probably without God would have been a series A funding round um, to really drive the business on. 
that is difficult to execute within Ireland today. And, and you'll see the likes of, of Stripe and even Intercom have had to go to the US to, to, to leverage that scale of investment. And we also thought Genesis was a really good fit for us. And we liked the way they talked about product. We liked the, the way that they, they laid out how Alta Cloud could fit into and even drive their strategy for customer engagement and AI. Um, so those things made Genesis very attractive to us uh, from an acquisition perspective. Um, so you know, we started, it was actually quite a whirlwind. Uh, you know, we had we had talked to Genesis earlier in our cycle, but we weren't ready. Our product wasn't mature enough. Um, we hadn't the sales built up to prove out the concept. Um, and that was a couple of years before the actual when they approached us at the end of 2017. So they, you know, we started talking to them probably around October. Um, we did a number of demos, but by December we were at a letter of intent. And then we, you move into a due diligence phase where basically we have to prove that what we're saying uh, from an intellectual property perspective, from a software design perspective, from a customer engagement perspective, actually all stacks up and the lawyers get involved. And it's quite like, you know, your, your, your whole life is laid bare for three months uh, and the whole, everything you've worked on is laid bare for three months while that due diligence process executes. Um, but we, you know, we, we, we got through it pretty quickly and, and it is quite a quick turnaround from a letter of intent in December to ac actually closing the, the acquisition at the end of February. And, Genesis, and right now, Genesis in Galway, um, I can't keep up with the announcements. What yeah. sort of size are you at at the moment in the plan? Yeah, so so you know we committed. So Genesis came in. We they started to grow the team. We were in the Porter Shed at the time, and in fact, AltaCloud were the first company into the Porter Shed, and that was a great uh, help to us as well. And and the the Porter Shed is an amazing amenity for the tech community in Galway, and it's great to see this all the startups that are happening in there, and also the the contribution that larger companies like like ourselves are making to help those startups along the way. Um, but, you know, we were in the Porter Shed, we were 22 people, well, we were 20 people in, in Galway at the time, and we started to expand within the Porter Shed. We actually inserted an extra row of desks jammed in between the current row of the desks just to take the people, um, which you could do pre-COVID, I think <clears throat> we'd have to rethink it now. Um, but we, you know, we grew to 44 people. In, in the space of from the 1st of March through to September when we moved out and moved down to our office in Woodkey. And now we've outgrown that office in Woodkey. We're, we're up to, uh, we're just short of 170 people now. And um, we're on tar track to get to over 300 in 2022. And hence we've decided to take a, a lease in Bonham Key. Um, New dock plan development. Yeah, the development down the docks, and which we you know we see as a strategic development for Galway and for the tech community in Galway. Um, obviously, with COVID, uh, we have to think very carefully how we use that space. Um, it's it's we see you know everybody's working from home now, and we see some people will want to continue to work from home, 
uh, even after COVID. And we also want to expand our reach and, and enable uh, remote workers as well, um, working for Genesis in Ireland. Um, so we see Bonham Key as an anchor point for, you know, it has, it'll have seating for 300 people, but it'll be an anchor point for even more. Um, and it'll be used for training and development, um, for key meetings and for key customer events and for as a focal point to for us to engage with the community and um, the top floor of the building is laid out such that uh, it's for training and, and meeting spaces and you know under the bottom key remit uh, we will actually open that up to the public um, for public meetings for at least 15 days a year um, really interesting yeah, that like the whole future of work there with the flexible workspace and you know it's a big buzzword at the moment but that's a really tangible example of of yeah. how, how you can make that work and leverage i guess we're a small country on the western seaboard of europe right so um being able to have that flexibility of not remote working and so on i think a lot of companies have changed their their approach to that in the, in the light of the pandemic. Um, yeah, look, <clears throat> the world has absolutely changed through this pandemic. And <clears throat> part of that is down to cloud computing that has enabled people to remote work. I dread to think of the, act, the impact on the economy if COVID had hit us even 10 or 15 years ago, before we had these cloud-based tools that enabled us to work from anywhere. Um, <clears throat> And then having said that, within in when we move into bottom key, as we build the fit out, we're completely rethinking how we do our audiovisual equipment. Every room will have AV equipment so that you always assume there's a remote worker in the mix for every meeting, for every activity. So the way you fit out a building is radically changing as well to support that. It's a completely different mindset. Um, can I ask Joe about you know you talked about the you know the rich history and, and the, the tech industry in the west of Ireland? Um, why, if in your view, why the west of Ireland? Like, what makes this a special place to to work and to and to do business? Well, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was only really uh, Northern Telecom, which was what Nortel was before it became Nortel. And that was a manufacturing facility for telephone equipment in Europe, where they basically took what was developed by the Canadian mothership and tweaked resistor values and capacitors to make it amenable to the fragmented European market at the time. Um, digital equipment you know, arrived in, uh, around the same time in the early 70s, and that was a manufacturing facility. And really all there was back then until the 90s was Northern Telecom Digital and NUIG, uh, who obviously go back to 1845, who were you know, primarily a medical college um, with an element of engineering and arts. Um, although having said that, Alice Perry was the first woman to graduate from it with an engineering degree, uh, I believe in uh, between Britain and Ireland uh, back in 1901 or 1910. I'm not sure what the date was, but it was the, in the early 1900s. Um, so there was, there was a, you know, Ireland was a manufacturing base. And 
when when I joined Apple, it was a manufacturing base. And then we went through the, tr- the first large transition, which was the move of manufacturing from Europe and from the US uh, and shifted into the Far East. And that was the first massive transition. And that meant that there was a lot of pain where, you know, Galway, we thought it was the end of Galway when digital equipment uh, shut the manufacturing facility in, in, in the early 90s. But it wasn't. It was actually a release of energy that led to the software engineering boom we're seeing now. And, you know, the software side of, of DEC became Compaq and then Hewlett Packard. And Nortel, the software design center, started there. I talked about how that led to to some of us going to Cisco in uh, the late 2000s. But there's other, you know, when digital equipment uh, showed up shop, we had there was other spin outs like Cybernet and Storm Technologies and Netfort and Netfort, you know, all those are still going. Uh, Netfort was acquired, uh, you know, Netfort was the company founded by John Brosnan and was acquired by Rapid7 last year. So that continues to grow. So the legacy from digital equipment is still there, um, you know. Um, and then, you know, we saw things like the Galway Technology Centre started in the early 90s, again, as an incubation centre to, to give startups a, a location to start. And that has, they also uh, spawned the Porter Shed. And now we have the Galway City Innovation District uh, concept for startups. So there's a, that transition from manufacturing to software wasn't the end. It was actually the dawn of a much larger wave of innovation. And there isn't anything special about the West of Ireland, except that we have a very good business environment driven, very much enabled by the IDA and Enterprise Ireland um, <clears throat> that supports indigenous and multinational corporations to to have engineering operations and software engineering operations uh, in, in particular and obviously we have a whole pharma cluster as well but i'm going to focus on the the the, the ict cluster here um, that is growing rapidly um, but the idea and enterprise island are enabling that um, so, so there is there's a there's a work life balance thing too. Like we hear a lot about you know the attractiveness in terms of recruitment and attracting skills, right? So people, yeah, absolutely. So work life balance and the access to the there there is definitely a work life balance. Like it, it, Go is a fantastic place to live. I have to say we have the sea, we have the river. So we're a city built on water, and we were just talking to Will earlier um, before we started recording about how both of us uh, so much enjoy sea swimming and all, and all, all of that. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have such wonderful facilities. We're on the doorstep of Connemara on one side and the Burn on the other side. We have some of the most fantastic scenery in the world. So, um, and the opportunity for hill walking, Diamond Hill, the Burn, all of that. So you're dead right. Quality of life is a massive thing. And that... We have we have a very strong university. We have GMIT, so we have you know the the twenty thousand plus students in Galway, um, which 
in a normal year during the winter, bring the city to life during the winter. And then we have the tourism sector uh, that absolutely bring the city to life during the summer. And the interaction of those two uh, elements makes Galway the most amazing place to live. What, what do you think we can be doing better? Like we've had, you know, we, obviously there's a lot of positives, but in terms of where you think like policy wise or like. Yeah, so so the big, you know, a personal, personal um, thing I have is I really think an awful lot of school kids are missing an opportunity to get into software engineering. And I specifically say software engineering rather than STEM, because I think the, the medical side, the biomedical side has been well served. I think software has been lagging. And the biggest opportunities I believe um, are in software. And software has transformed over the last 20 years from being a very engineering focused uh, discipline to being a much more creative discipline uh, where we brought in concepts like agile software development and design thinking in particular. So if you think about, if you think about it, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we had the VHS experience where you had this fiddly box in the corner that was a, had been designed by engineers and it was a nightmare to program. Now we have Netflix, which anybody from a five-year-old to a 95-year-old can use because the, and the user experience is, is one that, that draws you in. And it's that emphasis on user experience that has transformed the software engineering industry into, into a creative industry. That and, and mobile and cloud computing, uh, you know, you, when you think about it, the first iPhone only came out 13 years ago, and it has transformed the way we work, the way we play, and and the way we build applications. They're all digital first now, and you have to put user experience front and center because you have to have a user experience that appeals to you know um, appeals to people with no engineering capability whatsoever yeah that that level of experience become the minimum expectation for the for the next product it's it's raising yeah. the bar higher and higher for everybody yeah and the way we organize our software teams has completely changed we now have multidisciplinary software teams uh, that include user experience product management and software software uh, engineers to create that experience and you know 15 years ago, you would, uh, software engineer would have expected to spend um, uh, pretty much all their day sitting in front of a computer uh, typing code. Now, you probably spend three to four hours a day doing that, and the other part of the day working out how this interacts with, with people, how it interacts with other systems, and what the overall experience is. So it's a much more creative. And with that, it has turned from you know the 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 um the green screen concept and the guy in the hoodie typing away to being a much more diverse uh, skill set that's required and that brings me to a point around um you know i think we really need to work on diversity and ensuring that we get more women in tech that we get diversity in tech 
and and you know this year the com or in in the computer science class in in uh, in UIG only had fifteen percent female participation, and you know at least half the intelligent people on the planet are women, um, and I'd say at least half. Um, and I don't, you know, we have to do a better job of selling the creative industry that is software engineering to young women so that they can see computer science as an interesting and innovative career to, to embark on. Um, and it's, you know, a really well-paid career. The perks are really good. And, you know, the, the drive towards diversity um, has has ensured that the way benefits are organized when tech companies now should be attractive to to women um but we do a very poor job of of informing uh kids career guidance counselors and parents um of what a career in in software engineering can be and why it should be a good option for your kids and just on that, like within Genesis, we're, we're looking at a program with transition years where we would run a design thinking workshop um, on to help them build a small app that would use some of our technology for telephony and engagement. And um, we believe we can do in two to three days. We're rolling that out this year. We got we got sideswiped by COVID. It would have happened before Christmas. Um, well, we definitely want to see that pilot this year and get to as many schools and transition years uh, as we can in 2022 and hopefully we'll be back to some sort of normality um, and i've just been on the itag board meeting and we talked about exactly this topic and i know fidelity have have a great program working uh, that they started with you know, with the school in june and they've been into many transition years so there, there is good work going on there and you know, Sharon and Fidelity is, is a great leader um, as well. Uh, but, you know, I think we will see an emphasis on that from the iTech companies uh, through 2021 and get into schools and, and, and start to drive the initiative you just talked to Will. And I guess scale is the, is the big challenge there, right? So yeah. those initiatives are absolutely fabulous, but... Yeah, um, it, it needs to get to scale. So it has to come back to like government policy and Department of Education and, you know. Yeah, and, you know, it's good that computer science is now rolling out as a leave insert course, although it's just been piloted. But we need to push the, the Minister Foley and all the politicians that uh, computer science needs to be taught throughout the, the school curriculum. And there are, like you mentioned, some of those initiatives like like there are kind of systemic blockers that being removed in terms of like even COVID has kind of accelerated some of that with the flexibility of working and remote mm -hmm. working and childcare and all these other fraternity leave and all those kind of things that got in the way are moving in the right direction, but it's, that's not enough. You still need the, the role models and the incentivization to get people interested and see that that yeah, that, that's pretty cool. I can work from home two days a week, go into my office in Bonham Key and then go surfing in the Atlantic Ocean at the weekend, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of 
we need to get that um, attractiveness proposition out there as well. I think it's not just the guys in the hoodies tapping on the screens. Yeah. Joe, you mentioned like there's one of the big drivers and I suppose one of the reasons we are where we are, you know, with such a vibrant scene in, in Galway has been the IDA and Enterprise Ireland. Um, and I would 100% agree with you on that. But do you think that those guys and the multinational sector have more to do to bring, you know, to to to, well, well, to well, let me rise the tide? So I think a big blocker for the IDA in recent years has been the lack of office development, and that's why Bonham Key and you know the, the Crown development um, are, are very important for just creating office space that companies. Um, that the IDA are trying to entice can come and set up. So, and, you know, for me, I actually meet a lot of the companies the IDA bring, bring through because they, they want to hear uh, how we did it. Um, and I, I know that the, the office space issue has been a big issue. So Bonham Key is a big step forward. Um, the development behind Bonham Key um, at Cannes Station, I think it's critical to the centre development of Galway. And that's a brown uh, a brownfield site that just has to be developed. And it's in, it's right in the centre of the city. We need lots of apartments in there. We need, you know, a mixed development in there. I think there's a good proposal. We'll have to see what comes out of the planning permission. Um, but that'll create a whole new um, quarter within, within Galway. Um, the Land Development Agency are looking to add housing down in um, uh, Sandy Road. I think that needs to drive on. I have a personal bugbear about the way the City Council and the County Council are split. I really think Galway would be better served by a metro area council that would really think bigger. Like we have the debacle at Parkmore and, par and, and uh, car access going on for just ridiculously long. Um, the outer ring road is in progress. It's a critical piece of infrastructure. I think it needs to happen, but it needs to happen in conjunction with a move to the 15 minute city concept where we push on with the bus connects. We push on with the pedestrianization of the center of the city and, and enable the you know people to cycle and walk and, and safely uh, to work. And, you know, I don't take the point that uh, the weather is too bad. There's no bad weather, it's just bad clothing. Um, and I've started walking to work, you know, I live, uh, luckily I live out towards Salt Hill. So I have about a 35 minute walk to work into Woodkey at the moment. It will be similar to Bonham. So most days I, I walk. Um, and that's actually transformed the way I look at the city and the way I feel. <laughs> Uh, it's great to get the exercise. Um, so, you know, I do think Galway City needs to drive hard on that transformation and think a bit bigger and think in a metro area concept. And let's, you know, let's build the metro area for Galway, for me, extends from Furbo to Moycullen toward Moore to Clare Galway and everything in between. And that's, you know, that's way more than the 75,000 people that are within the artificial bounds of the city. It's more like 200,000 people. Yeah, and then, um, 
the needs of the needs of folks in those areas are completely different to people out in kind of more rural yeah. county Galway. It's a different. Yeah, and you know, bus, bus connects. We need to build park and ride. We need to dual track out to Athlon Rye. I have lots of people working with us who are coming in from the east of, of Galway who take the train. That train is jammed in the morning and there's only three, well, it was jammed in the morning and there's only uh, three three runs in in peak peak hours. That should be a shuttle service from Athenry into Galway through Orton Moor and as many stations as you can build along there as soon as possible with park and ride at every single one of them and, and integrally planned. Um, and then connecting into bus connects from other locations where we don't have rail. Um, lots so of, lots of interesting stuff there. Like I know, I I believe Cork City Council have extended. They've kind of gone to a metro concept as well. So you mentioned you worked in Apple Show. Yeah. They, like they they've pushed the city boundary way out into areas that were formerly the council. And that and I I know there were other motives for that, but it gives them, you know, kind of a, a sphere of influence that is within the catchment area of, of the city, not just the kind of artificial boundary. It's the yeah. same in Limerick with all the, the UL and Castle Troy in the county, technically. Yeah. I know they've made some changes there as well, but we definitely need to be thinking more strategic there. Yeah, and Limerick has just got a directly elected mayor. Um, I hope that directly elected mayor has enough power because I don't agree with the power that's invested in 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 um, uh, city managers today because they're not accountable to the people. Anyway, that's a whole different topic. But it brings back to the the waves of technological change about the manufacturing moving east and then the third. Yeah, I think we're definitely at the third generation of software engineering in the west. If I go back to the the Nortel digital days and then through Cisco and 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 Nortel. Uh, software design center what's happening with hp what's happening with uh, you know all and now we're on the the third wave which includes all these startups uh you know julica siren or uh, luna connect fleet ops all those startups um and much more software oriented companies uh coming to coming to galway and we, of course, you know, we have always had a, a, a unified communications customer care uh, cluster here between uh, Norte, well, Avaya now, um, Cisco, Aspect, Genesis, and uh, to an element, Julica. Um, so, you know, the top four contact center vendors in the world are, are, are here in Galway, believe it or not. Um, but, you know, the, the waves that are happening and, and, we had time domain multiplex telephony move to voice over IP. We've had on-premise software move to the cloud. We've had a, a kind of desktop orientation for software move to mobile. Um, and now we're seeing the combination of mobile and cloud transform the world again. And APIs are, are the, the other hidden wave that's happening. So every platform is exposing APIs that enable you to build and bring different things together into a mobile or desktop application, like embedding Google Google Maps into your website is pretty easy now, but you couldn't do that without 
an API from Google to enable you to do that. Um, and similarly, like you know, our own Genesis Cloud platform is a fully API-driven uh, platform that allows anybody to use the APIs. They don't have to use our clients. They can use the APIs to do what they want to build engagement and uh, applications. So APIs are, are, are one big trend uh, that are well, that's well established. The other one then is the application of machine learning at cloud scale. And that up to very recently has been solely in the remit of Google and Facebook uh, ty or type of companies where they're gathering in large amounts of consumer data and they're using that to drive advertising. But what we're seeing now is that that technology is like the way we used it in Alta Cloud is becoming much more usable for lots and lots of companies uh, to do it at scale and to bring an individual business's data to bear on the problem of giving their customers the best possible experience, whether that's when they arrive in a shop or when they're shopping online or via mobile, what's been presented to them, how your, how your, how your staff are engaging with them. And, and so that shift of being able to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence um, at the business level rather than the platform level, uh, like a Google or, or um, Facebook, is transforming the way businesses actually work and the way they need to gather their data together and make it actionable and apply a schema to that data um, so that machine learning can operate on it. And that's the big wave that's going through uh, businesses today. Um, and then machine learning, I think then if we look forward into the future, I think the one that keeps me up at night, but also gives me the greatest hope for humanity is where genetics and AI come together. So we have techniques with like CRISPR and where you can actually edit DNA sequences. And the big transformation here, and if you, in, in medicine over the last 20 years has been the realization that biology is actually a, a digital endeavor. And I, lose the, I use the word digital loosely. DNA encodes not in ones and zeros, but in the four base proteins that are used to build DNA, um, they encode life. And because it's four base proteins like that, which are very digital in nature, you can start to apply AI to that and machine learning to understand sequences of genetics, but also then look, explore in the software world what editing specific protein or DNA sequences will actually render in protein. And we've seen that in DeepMind uh, recently produced a, a paper on how they can apply AI to the very complex and tricky job of folding proteins. And expressing a protein is how life is built from the cellular level up. Um, and there are, there are trillions of ways that, that the proteins can be expressed, but it's actually the folding of the protein in real space that determines how it, how it acts as and interacts with its environment. 
So DeepMind have found uh, AI-driven shortcuts to be able to discover the useful foldings of proteins so they can be used in drugs to treat cancer or even COVID or whatever else it is. And, and that, we're only at the start of that wave. And that to me, you can see why it keeps me up at night, but also gives me great hope for humanity. Over the past couple of, when AI and machine learning is, is a big, I suppose it's a big, big topic or it's a big, big buzzword, um, Joe. And going back a number of years ago, it was a very, I suppose, specialist area. We've seen now with, you know, with the Amazons, Microsofts, the Googles, they're beginning to make it a little bit more accessible and a bit more uh, consumable for not your, I suppose, your deep learning specialists to be able to start to harness the power of of machine learning and, and AI into, into applications. Where do you see that type of stuff going? Um, well, well, I think, first of all, we have to get over the hump of making data useful for AI. And that's the, the, the sort of dirty secret of AI is that the algorithms is like 10% of the problem. Yeah, data yeah. engineering to get the, to get the data into a schema, to get it into the shape that can be applied, the useful to which you can apply then machine learning is actually 90% of the problem. And then you get overlays of security and compliance. How do you keep that data secure? Uh, how do you comply with things like GDPR and other regulations? And um, all of that engineering around it is, is critical. And then of course, there's the ethical aspects. Um, and often, and you need to be 100% aware of that all the time. Because even something as innocuous as street address of a person that you may think, oh, I can use that, can get you into terrible trouble. Um, because, because address can actually uh, be, a, be a proxy for an ethnic minority, for example. And that has happened in a uh, bank got into terrible trouble in Detroit where they, st they stopped offering loans to people from particular street addresses because they had run an, a, a machine learning algorithm that said a lot of people from those addresses default or a, a small number more than other addresses default. And that led them into a terrible ethical dilemma that they had essentially stopped offering loans to people of color. So you need to understand the data that you are working with. And that's, you know, people who build business rules and apply AI need to be 100% cognizant of that all the time. Just because the algorithm said something doesn't mean you have to, you, you take that at face value. You also need to apply it. Okay, what data is the, is the, is the, has been pumped into that algorithm? Are there any unintended consequences of what the algorithm is telling us? And how do we code to reduce and minimize those unintended consequences. Like they're the, they're the real new challenges that have been exposed by the scale because like the algorithms are old, right? Like <clears throat> the, big, the fundamental algorithms are like 1960s university papers, right? Or, you know, they're, they're not new uh, is my and, point. And you can see how Facebook is getting into trouble 
Facebook's <clears throat> driving goal is to keep engagement with the Facebook application. Therefore, their algorithm is tuned to feed you the stuff that you seem to like. But what the, the, the unintended consequence of that is if you start clicking on clickbait in a particular direction like uh, QAnon or, or anti-vax or whatever it is, it'll keep feeding you that and reinforcing that behavior, which is not good for society. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating area. Uh, we could we could do a whole talk on that. Yeah. And then, then there's the data, the more layers you put on it, and the ethics and everything. It's a, it's a fascinating area. Yeah. We're we're almost out of time, gents. Joe, could I ask before we wrap up if you could cast your mind back? You, you just arrived out of UL. Um, what advice would you offer to that person now, based on your career experience? I think I learned the lesson around the mid 2000s that you own your own career. And I was 20 years into my career at that point or 15 years into my career at that point. You own your own career. And really, you need to give yourself a framework to make that ownership real. And for me, it's like every three years, I kind of sit back and look at what what I'm doing in my role right now. Um, Am I enjoying it? Uh, Is it bringing me to a place that's making me better and better from my own internal concept of better, but also from a market external concept of better. Um, so I would recommend to anybody starting out that now that every three years, sit down and evaluate where you're at and where you'd like to be in the next, looking forward another year or two. I, I always think, Three years is a good horizon because it's tangible, whereas people ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Five years is just too far out. And 10 years, the world will have changed anyway. So I think a, a two to three year horizon is a good one to look forward. That's a, a great um, piece of advice. Uh, no one else is going to do it for you if you don't do it yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Joe Smith, co-founder of AltaCloud and SVP and group leader of the AI group at Genesis. Thanks for joining us on the AI Tech Podcast. Thanks, Phil, and thanks, Will. You can listen back to prior episodes. We're on SoundCloud or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also catch us on social media. Just look for iTag Podcast or Atlantic. Until next time, from Philip Smith, take care.